All right, everyone, if you would turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be studying uh, the last few verses of this chapter this morning. We know who our Savior is, amen? amen? We know who our King is. But oddly enough, we still don't know who our President is. We are coming out of an election season that has ended with a great deal of uncertainty and controversy. So continue to pray for your country, but continue to have faith and rest assured because Christ will bring resolution one way or the other. And no matter who sits in the office in D.C., we know that Christ is on the throne and we have nothing to be afraid of. Now, whenever we have a big election, one of the frustrating things that we have to deal with is really a part of the landscape of politics in America. Candidates rarely do what they say they are going to do. All of them run upon a platform. Usually great promises are made, declaring what they will do for the nation if they are elected. They will make great progress. They will make great strides to solve the problems of the nation. Of course, they're going to do all of that without raising taxes, because somehow, magically, that nothing costs anything when you're in office. Uh, sometimes the platform isn't so much about big promises of what will be done, but it rather is just, uh, I won't be like the last guy who was in office. And so the platform, no matter what it is, is always optimistic. And usually it's quite vague. There's not a lot of details about how that candidate intends to accomplish their platform. There are just simply promises about what will be done, not how. So very often the promises that were made by the candidate who wins office end up fading into history or getting amended by the difficult reality that they cost too much, or they would require too much collaboration across party lines, or because of a dozen other reasons that prevent things from actually happening on Capitol Hill. And that leads to lots of disappointment, I think, in politics in general for many Americans who really just wish that people in public office would walk the walk instead of simply talking the talk. But isn't that a problem in God's church as well? Don't we see the same kind of disconnect between what many believers confess to be or to believe and what they actually do, how they actually act? That is what we're going to speak about today in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, in the verses we studied most recently, two weeks ago, Paul compared how blessed the Corinthians were compared to himself and to the other apostles, such as Apollos and Barnabas. Paul pointed out that the Corinthians were in many ways better off than their leaders were. The Corinthians were safer. They were more esteemed among their neighbors. They were more free to do what they wanted there in Corinth. But then he caps that comparison with a surprising instruction. He instructs them to be more like him and like the other apostles, even though that would mean putting their favorable state in jeopardy. Walk with the truth, serve God sacrificially, exhort and challenge your brothers, be less like your comfortable selves, and more like the apostles who you seem so quick to criticize and critique. He urged them to follow after his own example of faithfulness. And so he continues that line of thought here in verse 17, as we are in chapter 4 of the Corinthian letter. He says in verse 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 
And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We need to be sanctified today because we, though we represent you as your people, are not nearly as holy as you are, Lord God. Our lives do not bear the same kind of purity that you bear. But Father, we know that you have provided means by which whatever is wrong in us might be made right. And so I ask that you would sanctify us by truth. And we declare this morning that we believe your word to be truth. And so wash us in this word today, Lord God. May you purify your bride. May you keep us near to you, Lord. May you prevent every effort of our enemy to dissuade us from faithfulness. Lord, keep us on the path and help us to be a glory in your kingdom. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's concerned with the condition of the church in Corinth. But at the same time, he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was not able to go and minister to them directly. He could not come to their aid in a personal way. Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus, another church that he was engaged in, and the Holy Spirit had really opened a door for ministry there. There were some great opportunities that he had, and so he couldn't afford to leave those opportunities to come and fix the problems that were going on in Corinthians firsthand. So he did the next best thing. He sent someone that he trusted, another man of faith, another man who had been engaged in the service of the Lord. He sent Timothy to them. Timothy was no stranger to the Corinthians. If you read the history of their church, he was there from almost the beginning and inception of that congregation. After Paul had begun his first evangelistic efforts in Corinth, Timothy and Silas were in Macedonia, and they left there to come and join Paul and to help the efforts to reach out to the brothers there in Corinth. So Timothy had ministered alongside Paul in that church. They would have known him well. Furthermore, Timothy modeled integrity in a way that he lived out his faith. He humbly followed the example of those who brought him to the Lord. And so it is Paul's hope that by sending Timothy, the Corinthians might get clarity on the way that their faith should be playing out in their lives. Timothy was a great example for them to follow. The evidence indicates that Timothy was not the one who delivered the letter to the Corinthians. Some people make that mistake of thinking that Paul is saying, I'm sending you this letter by the hand of Timothy. But in fact, Paul had sent Timothy to Macedonia for a time, and he had sent this letter by Sosthenes. So Paul is essentially writing saying, prepare yourselves because Timothy, when he is done in Macedonia, will meet you there in Corinth. And when he comes, receive him well. He is going to be an example to you and will continue to share some of these truths that I'm trying to teach you through this letter. Timothy's mission was to help the Corinthians follow the example of the apostles. Timothy would serve as a concrete example to them of one who had embraced the pattern of faith that was set for him by those who were specially appointed by the Lord to form the early church. Timothy is described in other places as the beloved and faithful child in the Lord to Paul. Paul had shared the gospel with him and had brought him into ministry life. And Paul too, or Timothy too, lives a life that is worthy of imitation. Well, I think it's very important to clarify here, especially in light of what we learned two weeks ago. When Paul says he wants the church there to imitate him, it's not because he sees himself as a perfect Christian. 
It's not because he's the only good Christian around to follow. He is trying to reproduce his commitment to imitating Christ. That's what he wants the Corinthians to imitate. He puts Christ first in his life, and he hopes that the Corinthians will do the very same in their lives. So Timothy imitates Christ in the same way Paul does. So he's a faithful example to other Christians as well. At the end of the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes uh, in chapter 16, verses 10 through 11, he says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So the Corinthians needed to be kind of instructed in this way because their attitude towards the apostle, towards Paul to this point, has been a mixed bag. Some were in favor of his ministry and his doctrine, but others aligned themselves with different teachers and were acting arrogantly as though Paul would never really come and back up the things that he wrote to them. And therefore, they were behaving as though Paul had no real power over them as an apostle. Verse 19 tells us that Paul has every intention of eventually visiting them in Corinth in person. And when he does, Paul makes a, a somewhat ominous promise to them. He says that he will see how powerful these troublemakers really are, and he will determine for himself whether they are all talk or if they present a true problem to the well-being of the church there. As a leader in God's church, Paul serves as a kind of under-shepherd to the one true shepherd, Jesus. Paul must keep his eye on the flock and make every effort that he can to assist the Lord in driving out any wolves or lions that would constitute a threat to the flock of sheep that he calls his church. And at this point, though, Paul is not sure just how much of a threat these people appear to those who oppose him. And the other apostles um, are, are not sure as well. And so as we get to verse 20, Paul delivers the driving principle of our passage of Scripture this morning. Paul makes a big picture statement describing the kingdom of God, which sheds light not only on the nature of God's rule over what he has made, but also explains Paul's strategy for dealing with this specific commotion that has risen up in Corinth. Verse 20 declares that the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. It does not consist in talk, but in power. Now, in order for us to understand what Paul is saying with this declaration, we need to break it down into three main ideas. First of all, we need to understand what the kingdom of God means to Paul. What does that concept represent? Secondly, what does Paul mean by talk? And then conversely, what does Paul mean by power? And how does talk differ from power in the context of the kingdom of God? And so beginning with the kingdom of God, we see that it is a concept Paul doesn't talk about quite as frequently as Jesus did. When you read through the Gospels, you'll hear Jesus talking about again and again and again the kingdom of God and how he was come to herald the kingdom of God and to bring it about. But Paul does talk about it at some length in his letters about a dozen times, and it still plays a very significant role in his writings. When Paul refers to the kingdom of God, he is speaking of the present and future reality of God's dominion and authority over all that he has created. But he is especially having in mind also the people that he has called to be a part of his eternal family. So the kingdom of God is over all things that have been made, but has a special significance to those, who's, those whom he has called to represent him as his own. 
So this is a very broad concept that tries to capture the essence of God's will being done in his creation. And as we think about the kingdom of God, we will gain a better understanding of how God rules and what he intends to accomplish among the people that he has made and saved for himself. According to Paul, the kingdom of God is future in that it is something that those who are called in Christ are promised to inherit. There is, of course, in this world that we live in a current disruption in what God has made. Not all of His creation is behaving as if God is on the throne and ruling with perfect authority and power. In some ways, there are many in this world that are mimicking the action and behavior of these Corinthian Christians who don't really treat Paul as if he has any real authority in their lives, although they profess to follow the, the God that Paul presented to them. It would appear to us that God's rule over his creation is not quite complete because there exists within the realm of what he has made a certain opposition to his rule that has not yet been extinguished completely. It would appear that way. That opposition can be understood as sin. When we break God's law in order, when we we go against his command to us, we are challenging his authority. We are acting as though we are enemies to the kingdom of God. And so this creates a conflict that threatens the will of God and resists his authority and rule. As the ruler of the kingdom, God has a perfect plan to do something about that disruption. It's not something he's unaware of. It's not something that's outside of his scope to deal with. So the kingdom of God points to the future peace that will be brought about as the king resolves the problem of sin in his timing and in his perfect plan. And he does so through the work of Jesus Christ. Every human being who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ has had that internal conflict that rages against the authority and dominion of God, has had that internal conflict resolved. Because through the blood of Christ, the faithful are transformed. Because Christ was willing to come and live a perfect life that was completely free of sin, and then be suffered as if he was a criminal and put to death on a cross in a brutal way, Because he was willing to endure that, those who trust in him have had their guilt removed from themselves. They have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, they are no longer rebels and criminals. They have been legally washed free of their debt to sin. Christ has paid it in full. Now, instead, they do have a legal claim, but it's not to the wrath of God. They have a legal claim to their Father's kingdom. They have been ushered into the kingdom of God, not just as citizens but as sons and daughters of the king who sits on the throne. So an inheritance of immeasurable proportions awaits them in the future. If you are a Christian today, you look forward to a heavenly realm, which is one is so much more superior to the realm that we are in today. And Paul in his letters, when he mentions the kingdom of God, is often mentioning it in reference to the fact uh, that those who follow after Jesus Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. But those who are simply pretending to be in the kingdom of God, but not following after God with any sense of devotion or or obedience, are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Do you look forward to this kingdom, brothers and sisters? Do you look forward to the future presence of the kingdom of God coming forward to us and and manifesting itself in, in a full consummated way? I sure do, especially in a season like we're in today. I look forward to that time when Christ will come and put to death once and for all all the sins that have corrupted his creation. So the kingdom of God is future. But at the same time, and this is very important, 
the kingdom of God is also a present reality. It is present because of the nature of the king himself. Think about this. The kingdom is present right here and right now because the perfect God who reigns over all things is a sovereign God. He's not just a God who will be sovereign eventually when he comes and dispels all sin and creates a new heaven and a new earth. It's not like he will take his throne in that moment. God has always been and will always be, and make no mistake about it, is presently on the throne in control of his creation. There is no power that can threaten his dominion and authority. So even though God has allowed for a time and a season an apparent uprising of disobedient people who struggle against his rule, rule is never out of his hand. God is calmly abiding over all that he has made, and the resolution of the problem was worked out long before God even allowed it to take place in what he had created. So to Paul, the kingdom is more than something to look forward to. It is a reality that, lost, that the lost people of this world cannot fully see, but it is a, re a reality that absolutely exists, and it exists now. Paul seeks consistent, or speaks consistently about the fact that he and other apostles and elders were serving the kingdom of God currently, here on earth. When they ministered according to the gospel, they were doing kingdom work. Turn with me for a second to Hebrews chapter 12. Now, there is some debate about who wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know for sure. There is no biblical declaration about who is the author of that book. Some people make a strong argument that perhaps Paul himself wrote the book. Um, others make a, an argument for others, such as Apollos or an unknown author. But in Hebrews chapter 12, whatever the writer is writing about is not something that Paul is opposed to. In fact, these things have accord with what Paul would preach about the kingdom of God. And so listen to what is said in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 26. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Who is it talking about there? It's talking about God the Father. He will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Verse 27. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, what is, what is the author of Hebrews talking about here? He's talking about the final judgment, when God will ordain for the current heavens and earth to pass away. Their corruption will be done away with once and for all. All the physical kingdoms that we see now on earth, all the earthly kingdoms of men, if you will, will be taken apart and dismantled and done away with. And what will be left after that day of judgment? An unshakable kingdom, the kingdom of God. It is the only one that will remain. And therefore, let us be grateful, verse 28, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. See, the kingdom of God is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is substantial, and in fact, the shakable kingdoms of man must be removed in order for the unshakable kingdom to be fully revealed to us. Notice that the author of Hebrews does not say that once the earthly kingdoms are washed away, that the greater kingdom of God will be established now. No, he doesn't say that as though it didn't exist before. He says it will remain. And what does that tell us about the kingdom? It tells us that it is here now, that it exists, it is current. 
So there is definitely a future element to the kingdom of God, but make no mistake about it, the kingdom of God is also very present now. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. In this passage of Scripture, the believers have been called into His kingdom. It says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. He doesn't say who calls you to the kingdom that will come. He says He calls you now into His kingdom and His glory. And I want us to notice there in 1 Thessalonians 2.12 that it talks about how we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of this kingdom that we have been called into. That follows the same train of thought that Paul is using here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He speaks about it again in Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's about living in these things right now in a way that reflects the glory and the holiness of the God who has redeemed us. Even though we live in a culture that is not redeemed yet, a culture that is in many ways opposed to the things of God, let us walk as redeemed people. And may all of our actions and attitudes and behaviors reflect this transformation that He has brought upon us that makes us able to come into the kingdom of God and to be a part of His family. So in order to communicate both the future hope and the present reality of God's kingdom, Paul wants to make it impossible for the Corinthians to think about the kingdom of God as something that can be talked about but not acted upon. It cannot be merely an idea that is pointed to in some faraway future. The kingdom of God must also be a present reality, and it needs to manifest itself in the ways that we obey and follow Jesus Christ. There is a difference between theory and practice. And God is more concerned to see one at work among His people than the other. He wants to see us practicing faith, not just talking about it. These Corinthians, Corinthians who we have learned are just enamored with logos, this wisdom concept. They came from a secular background, and you know the Romans were just in love with their philosophers and with imaginative thought. These Corinthians fancied themselves as wise, yet their wisdom reflected more their worldly background than their heavenly inheritance. Their behavior did not indicate that their profession was yet an accurate expression of their strong faith. The words, in other words, that they were saying were writing checks that their behavior could not cash. And so Paul is not impressed with their talk. He desires instead to see action that matches the things they claim to believe. He doesn't just want words from them. He doesn't just want talk. He wants the power of God on display in the way they serve the Lord. To be sure, Christianity depends upon talk, doesn't it? It depends upon communication. Communication is a tremendous part of our faith and our practice. The Word of God, the very Scripture that we study together today, is it not words? We need it, and we love it. It communicates to us the will of our God. He has revealed to us who He is and what He wants for us through the pages and the words of Scripture. Preaching is one of the primary ways that God intends to spread His message of truth. And how could preaching happen if it weren't for words and communication? We recently met with, uh, with Audrey Jude and um, her husband Juan, who are preparing to go on a mission to help translate the Bible 
into sign language for a, a nation that doesn't yet have that as a resource to them. So even when words are expressed through a hand motion, those words are still representative truths and they are necessary for us to communicate the truth of God to other people. Evangelism relies on the transfer of true information from a born-again believer to one who has not yet submitted their heart to Jesus Christ. And that evangelism has to involve communication. We cannot think that simply living as an example of faith to people around us is going to cause them to clearly see their need for repentance. It's not going to teach them that they need to trust in Jesus Christ necessarily. We are going to have to do more than just be an example. We're going to have to talk to people about why we do what we do. By talking about our faith, we explain our hope. We describe the transformation that has occurred in us. It is how we implore others to receive the gift of salvation. It is how we explain what walking with Jesus and discipleship is all about. And speaking of discipleship, discipleship involves instruction, doesn't it? Instruction hinges to a great degree on communicating the difference between what God wants of us and what He doesn't want for us. And those who are disciples of Jesus, of course, are called to be a people of love. Love, to be sure, is an action. It is a verb. To want the best for another person and to strive to help them to achieve it is really what love is all about. But part of the way that we show our love for God and part of the way that we show our love for one another is by confessing it, by declaring it, by speaking about it, by describing our affections and desires through the spoken word. We do it in song. We do it in prayer. We do it in instruction. And so each of these aspects of Christianity is dependent upon words and talk. But the scripture and preaching and evangelism and instruction and love, they cannot remain in the realm of the theoretical. Talk, in fact, is not pointless, but it is not the end goal of Christianity. Talk is useful in so much as it functions as a means to the end of changed hearts. And out of changed hearts flow godly behavior. The power of God's kingdom rule will be manifested in us. It will come out in our actions. And herein lies the real danger of words, friends. The nature of words and communication themselves is this, that words are representative markers of bigger concepts. They are verbal symbols that carry with them meaning. But that is why words are so easily used as a tool for deception because words only represent reality in theory. Sometimes they don't represent reality in practice. There can be a disconnect between what is said and what is done. And the disconnect between the representative and the reality is where deception comes into play. When words describe power, but the power never becomes a reality, then words prove themselves to be empty and useless. Turn with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus taught a parable in this chapter that similarly confronted the contrast between talk and power. And I think it sums this up in a very easy to understand way. Jesus tells his parable in the temple. He is addressing a group of chief priests and Pharisees, people who appeared by all rights to follow after God, but he is challenging the reality of what they say and what they appear to be. And so Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 28, Jesus says, What do you think? A man had two sons, 
And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and he went. And the man went to the other son and he said the same. And the son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And the high priests and the Pharisees said, The first. And so Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in, a way of right, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. You see the challenge that Jesus is giving to these men who so many in the world would look at them and think that their lives were godly because they said all of the right things. They knew the doctrine. They were able to pray beautifully. But when it came down to it, those who were actually following the commands of God's were, were, the command of God were these prostitutes and these tax collectors and these broken people who had heard this message of repentance from John and had turned away from their sin and decided to follow after the instruction and to look for this Messiah that John was heralding had come. They actually changed their behavior to match what God said, whereas these Pharisees and these high priests were not showing love to the people. They did not have integrity in their actions. They simply knew the right things to say, but they were not behaving in accordance to those right things. One of these two sons honored his father in word. The other honored his father in deed. And so the Apostle Paul is hoping here that the Corinthian church will decide to honor their father, not just in words of wisdom, but in the way that they live their lives. So too must the disciple of Jesus Christ reflect more than just empty words, but a manifestation of true faith. That is shown in a willingness and a desire to do what is pleasing to God, not only to just talk about it. Listen to how Paul confronted this issue very similarly in a letter to the church at Ephesus. He says in chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, meaning with those who are willing to just say the right things, but not actually willing to do the right things. For at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruit of the light is essentially the same thing that he describes in the Galatian letters as a fruit of the Spirit. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to God. So Corinth was not the only congregation struggling with this idea of walking in the truth that they professed with their mouths. Paul is here exposing a critical problem with the church at Corinth. Their profession of faith was not matching their behavior. And we're going to see that over the course of the next few chapters. Paul is going to dig into some very specific issues that are going on in the church that need to be addressed, where there must be a course correction. The Corinthians' sexual conduct was not pure. They were not behaving as those who truly honor the Word of God and the instruction that He gives about the ways that we treat our bodies and our relationships with one another. Their tolerance of sinful behavior was not noble. Rather than confronting sinful behavior among their brothers, they were putting up with it. They were making room for it in the congregation. 
and the testimony of the church was beginning to crumble because of that. Their love for one another was hollow. They were more concerned about their material possessions. So Paul had observed and had learned of how these Christians were taking one another to court and suing one another over trivial things. And in doing so, fracturing the love that should have bound them together as brothers and sisters under one father. Their handling of communion was, was not godly. They were not being reverent in the, the commission of the Lord's Supper. Their worship was becoming disruptive and disorderly because some were interrupting the services with expressions of sign gifts and drawing t- attention to themselves rather than edifying their brothers and sisters in Christ. So here you have a body of believers who have been saved out of a pagan lifestyle. Most of them were Gentiles before they were saved. And yet, you have the remnants of that pagan lifestyle clinging to them as they now are trying to cling to Christ. And friends, this is going to happen in every single church. Remember that Paul addresses them throughout this letter, not as fakers, but as brothers and sisters. He's loving towards them. He's caring towards them. As long as God is saving people out of darkness and into marvelous light, those rescued sinners are going to bring with them a mindset that is in need of a reset. That is what sanctification is. And we're seeing very clearly here the fact that sanctification is at the same time something that happens to us in an instant. There is a a very permanent sense in which when you give your life to Christ, you are washed clean by the blood of Christ. You are now declared righteous because he has imputed his righteousness to you. So you are in some sense sanctified from the moment you are saved. But there is a progressive sense to our sanctification as well. That as we walk in faith in the Lord, those things that used to define us God begins to peel those things away bit by bit. Those patterns and habits that you walked in, those tendencies that used to draw you away from God's command and into the the patterns of worldliness, those things God begins to peel off of you. He begins to trim them off like a branch that bears no fruit until finally your, your life looks far more productive than it did when you began the journey. So it is impractical to think that a church on earth can eliminate the problem of worldliness completely. Yet Paul, as a faithful shepherd to God's people, can't do nothing about it. He can't allow this drift and corruption to go unconfronted. He's got to do the work of a shepherd and help them in this progressive sanctification. Is this same discrepancy between word and power, is this true of our church? Of course it is. We are in the process of sanctification just like every other believer is. And so we need to learn to identify and to address when our words and our actions do not match, just as Paul is addressing this issue in Corinth. So let's take a moment to translate this contrast between word and power into our day-to-day lives by identifying some of the ways that words often ring hollow when they aren't representative of true obedience and devotion to the Lord God. We see this sometimes when a believer makes empty promises. Have you ever considered the weight of the membership uh, covenant that you agreed to if you are a part of this church in a formal way? Do you think about those promises that you made to serve your church, to offer up your spiritual gifts and talents as a way to bless the people who are around you? Have you considered your commitment to regularly worship alongside your brothers and sisters here, to come beside them in encouragement to provide for their needs when they have needs? 
Have you considered the covenant that you made to be honest to the word of God together with these men and women who are trying to do the same? These are promises that are made in a moment. We have a ceremony where we bring people up and we we introduce them to the church and, and we pray over them. But sometimes those covenants are not always followed the way that they should. We are not perfect human beings. So have you thought about your commitment to the church or, or have you been content to just make promises that don't really actually have to be fulfilled in your life? Think about that in terms of your marriage covenant. When God puts a person in your life that, that you, are, you, are, you fall in love with, that you, 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 you have a sense of attraction to and you, you think to yourself, this is a person who loves the Lord like I love the Lord. I want to join myself to them. I want to be yoked to them for the, for the rest of my life. You come before God and before many witnesses and you make vows, promises that you intend to keep to one another. How seriously do you take those promises? Do you wake up in the morning thinking about your spouse, thinking whether we are sick or healthy, I'm going to stand by this man or this woman. Whether we are wealthy or poor, this is the person that God has provided for me. I will treat them with respect and dignity. I will care for them. I will sanctify them in the truth of the word. We cannot afford to be a people of empty promises if we represent a God who never lies. We must be a people who takes our promises very, very seriously. We often see this play out in empty apologies. When we repent to God, but we don't spend much, if any time, actually grieving the sin that we are repenting of. We don't want to deal with the discomfort of considering the weight of what we have done to break God's law. We don't want to think about the suffering that Jesus had to endure to set us free from this sin and to assure our forgiveness. And so too often our repentance to the Lord is more a spoken formality than a heartfelt reality that results in a turning away from the sin that we confess. That's what repentance really means. It means to turn away from sin. And if that is true, then it's also not surprising when our apologies to one another can ring hollow as well. We tell a person that we forgive them for some offense that they have committed against us, but we don't consider the great extent to which Christ forgave us of our own sin. And so we too often fall back into that tendency to take our forgiveness away and to treat our brother or sister again as if they are some sort of criminal and not innocent in Christ. We hold their past sin against them rather than truly forgiving them the way that Christ has forgiven us. So we can't afford to be a people who gives out empty apology, who repents in in a non-realistic way. What about the empty intention where we declare to the world that we want to do the right things or we want to do something especially thoughtful or loving to the honor of the Lord or to the help of our brother and sister, and then we fail to follow through with it. When we do that, we subtly take advantage of the fact that a declared intention is often enough to get people to think about us in favorable ways and is much less work than actually making our intentions a reality. Ananias and Sapphira fell into this category. They had sold a piece of land. There was no obligation to them, but they declared publicly, we are giving all of the profits of this land to the work of God in His church. That would have been a beautiful gift, a great offering. And no doubt, many people admired them for that promise and that declaration to give to the work of the Lord. And yet, when it came time for them to give that offering over, they kept a portion of it secretly for themselves. 
They didn't have an intention to actually carry out their declaration. They wanted to get a, a good deal out of this thing. They wanted to give a portion of that, but keep part for themselves so they could bless themselves with the money and then bless themselves also with the public perception that they were particularly godly people. That's not the kind of intentions that we should declare as Christians. When we say we're going to do something, we should make every effort to follow through. Better yet, we should just do what we know is right instead of declaring to people that we're going to do something godly so that we might get their praise and admiration. And perhaps, perhaps most seriously, there are other examples, but perhaps most seriously is emptiness in worship. Do we content ourselves to come and to sing the praises of God, but then to live in the other days of our lives when it's not Sunday, it's not the Lord's Day? Are we content to live like the rest of the lost world lives? As if our true love is our career? Or as if the ways of the world mean more to us in the way that we live our lives than the instructions and the scriptures that God has laid out before us? Is our worship going to be in word only? Or are we going to become doers of the, world, of the word of God? Understand how important it was for the Corinthians to see this discrepancy, that they could not live lives as though they had not been changed. Their faith in Christ had to be more than just words. It had to be lived out in power. And so Paul was determined to apply this principle to them. It's not one that he didn't apply to himself. Remember back in chapter 2 of the same letter, Paul wrote, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see the example that Paul was setting for them in his own life, that he wanted to show them how powerful it is to trust the Word of God and to live surrendered to the things that God has called us to. Paul is sending Timothy to demonstrate the power of a changed life. Timothy's example will need to suffice for now, but Paul will eventually come to interact with these Corinthians that he loved. How would they prefer Paul approach them when that time comes? He lays out two options for them. Should he come with discipline, bearing the rod that is so uh, indicative of the Old Testament commands that a father who has a disobedient child should not spare the rod lest he spoil that child. He says, should I come to you with discipline like a father who needs to meter out a consequence for disobedience? Or should I come to you with love in a spirit of gentleness? What Paul is in insinuating here is that how they respond to this letter and to the example of Timothy is going to determine in, in, in part which kind of reaction they get from Paul when he eventually does return to Corinth. And I want us to take note that both of these are acceptable approaches. And both are expressions of both love and power. If he were to come gently with a heart that is nurturing to them, it would not be a weak response from Paul. True love is more than words. It is a physical expression of powerful care for another. It was not weak for Jesus to love us to the, the, the degree that he would give his life for us and be destroyed on the cross for our sins. And so true love is sacrificial. It, it takes harm for the benefit of another. And so perhaps 
Paul will show power by coming to them in gentleness, not holding against them the fact that they were not respectful to his leadership or responsive to the things that he wrote. But on the other hand, he might come with discipline. And discipline is not a pointless exercise. If it is done biblically, it is also not a loveless exercise. It is one that helps a brother or sister see how serious their sin truly is. And that is to be done in a care and concern for the heart and the well-being of that individual. Both are powerful and each has its place in time. And that is where discernment can serve a leader well. Given the choice, most would choose gentle correction, right? That'd be preferable to them. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So most people would love to be corrected gently instead of firmly. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in, a trans, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. But gentleness does not exclude forcefulness. Paul is being gentle to them in this letter, isn't he? But there comes a point where in order to be loving, there is a limit to gentleness. Um, I saw this illustrated just recently as I was watching a sporting event and this competitor in this event uh, was instantly overcome with pain. Nobody knew at first what was going on, but he limped over to his coach and he had dislocated his arm. It was dangling out of his socket. And he was, I mean, he was in tears. This grown man, very strong man, was, was, was just wincing. He could not barely bear the, the agony of this, this bone being out of joint and the strain that it was putting on the joint. And so his coach leaned in and whispered in his ear. And then this coach that cared for his athlete reached down and grabbed his wrist with both hands and just pulled instantly. And you saw the face of that athlete change for a second. And you could tell it was probably extremely painful for him to feel that for the moment. But then almost instantly after this, you saw a calm come over that athlete as relief from that injury over, overwhelmed him. He didn't hurt anymore. The joint was back in its socket. I think this is kind of an illustration of how good leadership has to function. Gentleness is the order of the day until gentleness does not accomplish what truth needs accomplished. There are times when you must bring a little bit of hurt to someone in order for them to avoid a greater pain, a more lasting pain. And so as a good apostle, as a good leader, Paul is willing, if necessary, to come to them in an admonishing and confrontational way so that the sting of their sin might hurt for a moment, but a repentant heart might keep them from the greater dangers of staying on that path of sin. Gentleness is not weakness. In fact, sometimes force is necessary to help a person the way they need to be helped. What is more harsh, to forcefully confront your brother or sister whom you love or to stand by them and let them slide into judgment and bring destruction upon themselves? So this was not a problem exclusive to the Corinthians. And it is a problem that will be addressed on a personal level and on a corporate church level in every congregation that seeps to worship Jesus until the Lord's return. 
We've already noted that Paul addressed essentially the same issue among the brothers at Ephesus. And to close, I'd like to read to you the way that Paul rephrases essentially the same challenge to the church at Thessalonica. So meditate on this as we, we conclude. It's 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-8. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Friends, may our actions be so much in compliance with our faith that the example of us following Christ would help others to see the importance and the blessing of following Christ, not just in word, but in deed. Would you bow your heads with me as we conclude in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for your grace and for the beauty of what you revealed to us in your scripture. And I pray, Lord, that you would ever be refining our hearts We are thankful, Lord, that we do not have to earn any kind of righteousness before you. And so this message today is not intended to hinder anyone with the burden of thinking they must be perfect to be worthy of the kingdom of heaven. We are worthy of the kingdom of heaven because of your son's perfection and his perfection alone. God, but it makes no sense for us to have our eyes opened to the truth, to have our hearts tuned to sing your praise, and then to intentionally sing off-key, to follow the ways of the world rather than the ways of Jesus that have been revealed to us in your word. And so I pray, God, that you would give us a harmony with you this morning, that we would desire to match our actions with the words that you have put into our mouths to the declaration and confession of faith in you that you have taught us by your scripture. So we thank you for this word that is able to direct and guide us. Let it be a light to us. And may we, in obedience to it, be a light to a dark world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.